And we're going to look at John chapter number 20 and just remember the resurrection of Jesus and hopefully glean a few things for our own walk and maturity in the Lord. But let's read 10 verses together. We'll read these 10 and then we'll have one more song before we really dive in. Verse number 1 of John 20, this is what uh, the Word of God says. It says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher. This is what we did at 6.45 this morning. We're here when it was yet dark, and it was cold, but we thawed out, and we're here now, so it's all good. And seeth the stone taketh taketh away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto him, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first unto the sepulcher. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that it was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but it was wrapped together in a place by itself. I'll pause there just for a moment because I uh, kind of grew up with this thought maybe that Jesus and his resurrection like ghosted through his clothes and the clothes just kind of like fell down, which uh, the Bible doesn't ever exclude that, but the Bible never says that. Uh, you don't want to make things more miraculous than they have to be. The resurrection is already a miracle in and of itself. It doesn't say that he, you know, just kind of misted through his clothes. This could be as simple as, Mary taught Jesus to make his bed in the morning, so Jesus got up on Easter morning, and he made his bed, and he folded it all nice and neat, and he put it right there. Regardless, it's there, and that's significant. We'll look at that here in a few moments through our sermon. Verse number uh, 8. Then went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. I want us to begin this morning by actually reading two verses that we have not already read. We just read the first 10 verses of John chapter number 20. And I want you to fast forward 20 more verses and go to verse number 30 of the same chapter, John chapter number 20, the very end of the chapter. And I want to begin with you just understanding why John wrote the 10 verses we're going to cover in the first place. So there's a very clear intention that is given to us by John, and he tells us, here's why I'm writing John 20 verses 1 through 10 and the rest of my gospel, and here's what he says in verse number 30. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So John says, I'm writing some things that Jesus did, but it's not comprehensive. I'm not giving you everything that Jesus did, verse 31, but these are written, the things that I'm choosing to write about, these are written for this purpose, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have a life through his name. Now I begin here because it would be a highly unusual Easter if there weren't a few in the room that are here this morning saying, I just don't know about all this Easter stuff. I just don't know that I can get to a point where I can believe that a man rose from the dead. Perhaps you're even further than that and you say, I actually do know about all this Easter stuff and, you know, it's outlandish and I don't believe. But to get a good meal for my mother-in-law, 
here I sit, or to make the family happy, here I am. I'm willing to go through the pain that I might experience the gain of the meal or the peace or the happiness that's going to come my way. And I find these two verses in John 10 or John 20 tremendously helpful. What John is saying here towards the end of his book is that I'm trying to convince you. What John is saying is that as I write verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, I'm not disseminating information needlessly in some careless, haphazard way. I'm actually giving this to you. I'm recording this so that you as a reasonable person can consider the evidence and put it before you and come to a conclusion on the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, and if you come to a belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you will find that you can have life through his name. John is saying this is not just some pie in the sky reality that will be materialized one day, but you will actually find that you get life now. You'll find what, what Sean said in his video, that I was searching and I was looking and I couldn't find anything and there was a lot of anger inside of me that I was trying to push down and I was trying to do it my way, but I couldn't solve it. I couldn't get to the bottom of that riddle, but I came to a belief in Jesus and now all of a sudden there's a calmness. All of a sudden there's a peace. All of a sudden I found something that was missing. And this is what John's saying. That in a belief in Jesus, you can find life through his name. That, that piece of the puzzle that's missing in your heart, the one that you never talk about, but when you're alone with your own thoughts, you know it's there. And there's a hole that you're trying to fill with success or work or sexuality or drugs or alcohol or partying or whatever it may be that you're trying to fill it with. He's saying that that can be filled and you can find life through Jesus Christ. So John is attempting to grab our attention, to stretch our mind, to, to call us to consider the evidence. And this is all through his gospel. We're going to look at 10 verses today, but this is over and over again in John's gospel. He selects these stories very meticulously to present who Jesus is and who we are. You find this in John chapter number three. He gives us a story of this man named Nicodemus, this very religious man who comes to Jesus in the night and Jesus tells Nicodemus, I don't care how much religiosity you have. I don't care how much you've gone to church. I don't care how many prayers you pray. That's not gonna work. You're gonna have to come to a place of faith and belief in me. Then he goes to the next chapter and he gives us the story of a Samaritan woman who has had five husbands. She has a living lover. She's looking for love in all the wrong places. And Jesus tells her that you too can follow me. And John is trying to present to us that no matter how good you are, you're still gonna need a savior. And no matter how bad you are, he will still take you and he will save you. And all through his gospel, he's presenting life in Jesus and belief in Jesus. And you come to this section, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 20, and it should help us because it's the resurrection. And if you're a believer in the room, let me tell you this morning, I want this to fortify your faith. I want to joy and rejoice with you. I want us to remember afresh and anew what we have in Jesus Christ, and it will be grand. If you're an unbeliever in the room, and no doubt there, there are, if you're an unbeliever in the room, I want you to just consider the evidence. I want to be very clear about my intention. My intention is John's intention. I'm going to try to convince you with, with the, the authority of God's word, but I just want you to consider it. And I think that's a reasonable ask. I think if you were to get a letter in the mail this week that told you that you were the benefactor of some distant relative who you've never met and they've left you millions of dollars, 
you would probably think to yourself, this is a scam, right? Not, not a Nigerian prince email, but if you got like an actual letter on, you know, real letterhead, you know, sign, some sort of seal on it, you would naturally be inclined to be skeptical and think that that was a scam. But if you got that letter in the mail this week, I bet you, you'd probably make a phone call. You may even Google that person's name. You would investigate somewhat. Why? Because the offer is too great not to consider the evidence and to research it a little bit. And I would claim that the offer of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and having life through his name, that a man rose from the dead, that that claim is so great and so almost out there that you have to consider the evidence. You have to at least give it some audience to be able to... to Dandle it in, in your mind some way, somehow. So that's our goal this morning, is to look at this. Now, I want us to see what John says. He says, I'm trying to convince you, so let me give you some, some information. Let me give you a description. And he tries to give us not just a, a description, but a convincing description. And he begins in the first two verses with this assumption. And we'll find that the, the disciples of Jesus, women, men, it didn't matter, that they came pre-programmed with an assumption that led them not to the resurrection, but led them away from the resurrection, actually. Look in the first two verses. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher. She seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And she said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Mary does not run to them and say, guys, great news, Jesus rose. Mary is not coming to the tomb on Easter morning with a lawn chair and popcorn to sit down and watch the show. She's not coming to see this dramatic resurrection take place. She's coming as a mourner. She's coming there to anoint the body of Jesus with some perfumes and aloes so it won't stink any longer. And she finds that the, that the body is gone, and her assumption is not Jesus rose from the dead, hallelujah. Her assumption is somebody stole the body. Somebody took him. Like, I don't, I don't know what they did with him or where they put him, but we got to find him. We can't just let them desecrate the body. This was important for the Jews to be able to bury in a proper way. And her assumption is to run to Peter and John and say, somebody stole Jesus, let's go find him. And we find that Peter and John have the same assumption. And in case it wasn't clear enough, the Bible tells us in verse number 9, look at that verse, it is very clear. For as yet they knew not the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Peter and John are not sitting there on Easter morning singing hymns and having a good time anticipating that Jesus is going to raise from the dead. Peter's not over there on, on that morning just, Christ the Lord is risen today. That's not Peter. They are downcast. They are downtrodden. They are, they are in shock and awe that Jesus was just crucified on Friday. They are befuddled. To, for them, it's over. Hang up the towel, throw it in, game over, we're done. And this was very typical in the first century. There were a number of messianic pretenders that would come along and would claim, I am your guy, put your stock in me, and I'm going to overthrow Rome. And if you have studied the Gospels at all, you know that Jesus is constantly trying to beat the disciples over the head to tell them, I'm not here to overthrow Rome. I'm not going to put a, a physical kingdom here. This is different. This is spiritual. But they're just not getting it. And even after he dies, they don't get it. 
What happened with those Messianic pretenders, they would claim to overthrow Rome. There'd be a little groundswell of, of support and, and let's, let's, yeah, let's do this. We don't want to be under Roman oppression. And then the Romans would kill them. They would squash the Messianic pretender and all of the followers would walk away and say, well, guess he wasn't the Messiah. And they have reacted in the same way that anyone else would have. They, they come pre-programmed, baked into them is this idea that Jesus is gone, it's over. They are not inclined to believe or have this assumption that he has risen from the dead. Now, we today have an altogether different set of assumptions as modern Americans many times. We have assumptions that, you know, religion is a crutch for those that are feeble-minded. We have an assumption that science and faith are incompatible. We have an assumption, perhaps, that religion is the opium of the masses, that people just have this hope of something future and grander once they die, and so it makes life more palatable now. There are a lot of assumptions that people come pre-programmed with today. But nevertheless, these first-century people had this inclination to not believe in the resurrection, just as I would say most reasonable people would be today. And this should help us to step back and say, okay, that makes me scratch my head. What then caused these people to believe? If they didn't naturally, if they weren't led into this, if this wasn't normative for them to believe in this, then how did they get to a point that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. And I want you to see how that happens. There's an inspection that takes place here in verses 3 through 8. The story continues. Mary comes. She tells the guys, somebody stole Jesus. Verse number 3. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. So Peter and John take off running. I don't know if John's younger or just more fit or whatever the case may be, but he gets to the sepulcher first. Peter is, is trailing behind. Verse number five, and he, that's John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. So John peeks in, sees that there's no body there, but there's some clothes there, and he just kind of stops. Here's Peter. Verse number six, then comes Simon Peter following him, and he went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. So here's what's happening. John gets to the sepulcher. He looks and he sees, and he just kind of stops. The, the Greek word there for he saw is blepo. It's very common. He just, he observed it. Peter walks in, and the Bible says that Peter seeth the linen clothes line there and the napkin that it's separate, but it's an altogether different Greek word. It's, it's the word theoreo. It's where we get our word theorize from. It's a very scientific word. What it means is that Peter goes in, and he sees the evidence before him, and the wheels begin to turn. And he begins to theorize and to think, why is this this way? If grave robbers came and they took Jesus, there's no way that they would have taken the, the clothing off of him. They would have been in much too, you know, much too big a hurry to do that. And there's no way they would have folded it neatly right there. Why would they have taken the grave clothes off of him? The grave clothes keep him from stinking. No way you want to carry around a dead body and the grave clothes actually have valuable, uh, valuable perfumes and ointments in them. There's no way grave robbers did this and the disciples couldn't have done this. The disciples aren't going to carry around a naked body. Peter is, is in the tomb and he's processing He's engaging his mind, he's engaging his brain, and he's trying to, to think what, I look at all the evidence and what could possibly account for all of this data, what, what's the solution to this here? And he's not inclined to think Jesus rose, but he's starting to put it all together. 
he's starting to see all this and come to a conclusion that, well, what else could, could explain what's happened here? And that's important. That's important because many unbelievers think that in order to believe in Jesus, that they just have to take a blind leap of faith without any evidence or anything tangible to wrap their mind around. And that's not the case. And I will, I will give, if you've been around church for any length of time, you would know this to be true. There is a lot of preaching that is so overtly emotional and so anti-intellectual that it does contribute to the notion that somehow I have to suspend my powers of deduction and take my brain out and set it on the table and just make a blind leap of faith. But that's not at all what the Bible says. John is trying to give you evidence and point to clues here on how these people came to believe. And the Bible does that over and over again. The Bible is constantly introducing evidence and eyewitness testimony and encouraging you to think and to ponder and to, and to reason out how is this? Why is this? What's, what's happening here? And you have to think it out. If you've never come to a place of belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for your sins, you, you have to consider the evidence. I don't have time this morning to give you all of the evidence, but I'll give you a little bit. The Bible says that Mary Magdalene is, is the first one there. If you read the other accounts, there were other women that were there as well, that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. Now, if you know anything about Mary Magdalene, she was a former demoniac. She was, a, she was loco. She was a crazy woman. She is a former, she's a reformed mental patient, is what Mary Magdalene is. And she, according to John, is his first witness of the resurrection, a female. You say, what's a female have to do with anything? To us, nothing. But in the first and second and third centuries, Everything. Celsus was one of the first enemies of the Christian faith who wrote about it in a detailed way. He was a second century Greek philosopher, and he wrote a book to attack Christianity. And here's what Celsus said about this thought that Mary Magdalene was the first witness of the resurrection. Now, he said this, not me, so don't be mad at me. Be mad at Celsus. He didn't believe in Jesus anyway, so be mad at him. So here's what he said. How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? Those are his words. You gotta understand in that in that day and age, the testimony of a woman had far less weight and authenticity than that of a man. Is that right? No, I don't think it's right. But that's the way it was back then. That that women by and large just had there was low regard for them. You couldn't enter their testimony into a court of law. But John writes and he says that Mary is the first witness here. Now, why would John write that? That's not going to help his case for a resurrection in the first and second and third century. Ironically, it does help our case today, but then it did not. Why would John write that? Well, the overwhelming perspective and consensus is just, it's, it's really simple. She actually was the first witness. It tells us that John is reporting what happened. He's not making up a myth. He's not making up a legend. John is not spinning a fairy tale for us. He's actually just laying out the facts line by line of what happened here. And we know that in, in a modern court of law, if you were to put a, a witness forward and that witness would somehow profit or gain by the testimony that they're bearing, that would somewhat discredit them. But if you put someone on a witness stand and the testimony that they are giving is actually going to hurt them, 
is not going to be for their gain or their good, but it's actually going to work against them, then you're much more inclined to believe that the testimony is rational and reasonable and is true. And what you find is that they're telling you Mary was a witness, which actually hurts their case, but it's, but it's true. It's what happened. What you find is that John and Peter, the men who come into the tomb and believe that day, those men actually go on. What happened to them when they bore testimony that Jesus rose from the dead? What did their lives look like after they gave that testimony? Did they gain from it or were they hurt for it? They were hurt for it. They got scorn. They got shame. They got physically hurt. Peter got martyred. John, according to history, got boiled alive, but he wouldn't die. So they, they, so they secluded him on a distant island called Patmos. That, that's, not, that's not a bed of roses right there. So you have to step back and ask yourself, then why in the world would they claim that Jesus rose from the dead? If they're not going to personally gain from this, why would they say that? Why would they go to their death for that? You say, oh, people die for religious beliefs all the time. There's religious fanatics all over the place. I'll give you that. Certainly there are some radical Islamic people that this year will martyr themselves for what they believe to be true and what some benefit that will await them in eternity, so to speak. But this is different. These men were in a place to know firsthand if what they were testifying to was true or not. This was not a future belief, and I, and I, I hope so. This was, I was there, I saw the empty tomb, and later, if you keep reading in John 20, do it on your own time, it'll be very profitable, you find that Jesus actually reveals himself to them, and they see the risen Lord. So these men know firsthand, and, and an unbelieving mind wants to say, they knew it was a lie, and they died for it, which really is, is a step of faith. People die for their convictions, not their concoctions. These men obviously believe that this had happened, that Jesus had risen from the dead, and these men are willing to go to their grave for this. And you have to at least ask yourself this. These are men that are not, they're not inclined to believe this. They, it, overnight, overnight their worldview changes. They go from believing that there was a future resurrection that would happen for all people at the end of time to one man in the middle of history rose from the dead, which they would have never been inclined to believe, and they go from being radical monotheists. Jewish people had no inclination or thought that God was going to become man, and they would have never worshipped a man as God. But overnight, they believed that a man rose from the dead in the middle of history, and they begin to worship this man as God. You, you find in chapter uh, 21, the next chapter, or at the end of this chapter rather, that Thomas comes to faith in Jesus and he falls down and he says, my Lord and my God. You find that these men do that. Overnight, their worldview changes. How do you explain that? How do you explain that these men had something happen to them that was so paradigm shifting and so mind bending that it changed them overnight not a process of 20 years of the slow trickle of okay I'm coming I'm to believe and slowly but surely I'm drawn into this but overnight they change if we don't believe in a resurrection of Jesus then we at least have to come up with some other alternative explanation as to what was so electric that shocked these men and empowered them to move out and to begin to tell everyone that they came in contact with that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and if you don't think that that's the resurrection, to come up with a different alternative, you're going to make leaps of faith that are just as grand as the resurrection in the first place. And these, something happened here. 
And John is doing his best to give you data and say, think about this. There's a, come up with an explanation for this outside of the resurrection. He's saying, you can't. He's saying, let me give you the facts and, and let your mind consider this for a moment. And his goal and his intention is that it would spur us to belief. Even verse number 10. I love this verse. It almost makes me chuckle. This story, it it ends with Peter comes in and he sees and and he begins to process and rationale. And then John comes in and the Bible says that John sees and John believes. And they didn't know the scripture that that, that there was going to be a resurrection, but they believed nonetheless. And verse number 10, then the disciples went away again into their own home. (laughs) Seems like anticlimactic, but he's just telling you what happened. It It has so much authenticity to it, does it not? But John's just saying, here's what happened. They believed and they thought, well, what's next? Let's go home and and see what happens next. And all through this, what is John doing? He's saying, believe, think about this, consider this. You've got to process this. You've got to come up with an explanation for this. You you have to think. But John's goal is not just to give you information. I would say he has a very clear intention. He gives you a a very, to me, a convincing description. That's not all the evidence for the resurrection. There's more than that, but that's at least some of it. And he gives you this description, but beyond that, he expects a reaction. And this is over and over and over again in Scripture that it, it moves to the resurrection of Jesus should propel us to a reaction. Either Christ is raised or Christ is not. There's no middle ground there. Either he raised from the dead and is factual and what we were singing about all morning long, there is actually evidence, there is something that could substantiate that and that's real or invalid or this is the greatest hoax that's ever hit our planet and we just royally wasted our time but not just today, every Sunday and every time we get together. And the Bible says as much. Paul writes and he says, if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain and we are yet in our sins. He said, if this did not happen, hang it up, call it quits. It doesn't matter anymore. It amounts to nothing. And this is John saying, look, you can't just ignore this. You can't just be on the fence about this. You can't just think, oh, oh, maybe it did. That works for some people. They find something substantial there. Good for them, but I don't. And maybe it's true, maybe it's not. You have to come come to a decision here. This is what John did in verse 8. The Bible says that he believed. For John, the penny dropped. He came to a moment where he saw, and, and his, his mind had no other recourse but to say, you know what, Jesus has ri- he had risen from the dead. This was a dramatic moment for him. This was, in our video that we watched, this was a dramatic moment for Sean two years ago. This was a dramatic moment for me when I came to faith in Christ. My own story, maybe you'll relate with it, is that I went to church like my whole life, Christian church. Not like, you know, I didn't go to the synagogue or, or to, you know, the Jehovah's Witness Kingdom Hall or, or to the Mormon Tabernacle. I, I went to a church much like this one. And if you would have asked me as a middle school boy, really, do you believe that Jesus died? I would have said yes. If you would have asked me, do you believe that Jesus was buried? I would have said yes. If you would have asked me, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I would have believed in that miracle. But there was a peace that was missing. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us clearly what the gospel is. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. For me, that was missing. 
I had never made it personal. I had never believed, not just that this happened as some you know, moment in history, but that this was for me. That Jesus was, he was crucified for my sins that I could not pay for them myself, so he paid for them for me. That he was buried and that he rose again and that was meant to be for me. That he was meant to give me life. That, that was meant to, to change and to impact me. And when that came crashing down on my heart and my mind, everything changed. And many of you, I know in this room, you've been there. You've had that moment as John did where the penny dropped and you came to belief in Jesus. And that's why you sit here this morning. You sit here to celebrate and to remember and to thank God for the resurrection of Jesus that he puts his stamp of validity on his life, on his message, on his death, that all of it is wrapped up in a neat little bow that we're able to just be propelled to belief and say, 